Hi, my name is Jamie Lynch, and you are listening to Eating Habits, my podcast about everything restaurants. I will explore the human element of the hospitality business, and I'll talk to the who's who in restaurants, explore their stories, and hear what's on their minds in the ever-changing landscape of the food and beverage industry. All right, today is January 3rd. Uh, We are in a new year, 2022, and I'm going to be talking with Patrick Whalen, my business partner, and going to be a constant guest on our podcast, Eating Habits. Pat, what's up? How are you? Good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about the vision that you had, that we had, um, starting our company, starting Five Church a decade ago, um, how that vision has changed over time, and then um, what the vision for 2022 is going to be. But I want to talk about you personally and your vision for um, starting the company, why that was so important to you, why restaurants, Mm -hmm. and uh, what you wanted this to be. I think the most defining characteristic that that I wanted at that point in time was I wanted something that was going to be the opposite of what I felt was soulless uninspired money factories like you know corporate restaurant groups typically are I'm not saying that all corporate restaurants are bad or that the people that work at them are bad because they're not at all but from a from a product delivery standpoint what guests actually receive at a corporate restaurant um, I think is is pretty subpar and I think they're paying a pretty huge premium or the guests pay a premium for the name um, no matter what restaurant that is and so when I wanted to start a restaurant I, I really wanted to deliver something to our guests our potential guests that was the contrary and better than what was at that point available in the marketplace in Uptown Charlotte what was the status quo at that time in your opinion like what did you what did you see? What was what was the restaurant scene like to you at that point? What were these corporate kind of money factories delivering? I think that they delivered so I think the formula for corporate I don't know this, but I think that the formula for corporate restaurants is they categorize their potential spenders. Let's say from a per person average standpoint, every ten to fifteen dollars. And for every 10 to $15, you've got a different kind of um, price purchasing level for your guests or your potential guests. And so at each one of those levels, they, by they I mean corporate restaurants, have carved out a steakhouse, an Italian restaurant, seafood restaurant, American food. And it doesn't matter what level you're at. I mean, you can go really, really bottom of the barrel, low end. Um, sorry for calling them out, but like <laughs> Applebee's, Cheddar's. Yep. Um, K&W Cafeteria. Like really, less <laughs> actually, even lower. <laughs> if, you can, if you can serve yourself your food with a shovel, <laughs> yep. that's what I'm talking about. I don't, I don't view that as, listen, if there's, a, if there's a demand for it and people like that, good for them. Right. But from our perspective, from my perspective, that's not yeah. a restaurant. That's not a desirable restaurant. But each price platform has its own sort of built-in 
identifiable brand. So if Cheddar's or KW Cafeteria are the bottom, and let's say that that um, Capital Grill, Joe's, Stone Crab, that kind of thing, are the top, 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 top of the corporate ladder uh, in terms of concepts and everything else is in between, I think that their strategy is to try to satisfy people that are able to spend X amount of dollars in each price category. As opposed to saying, okay, we have a product that we want to sell that we think will make people happy or inspired or feel satisfied, engaged, um, diverted at least for a moment from their life and their stress. Uh, instead of doing that and surprising them, which is what we want, these guys are absolutely predictable. If you go to Capital Grill, they do an excellent job of consistently delivering the same product over and over and over and over again. Um, that's not what we wanted to do. Not that we didn't want to be consistent, but we wanted to have some, we wanted to be dynamic. We wanted to be creative and unpredictable. Um, and that was really the, and this is going back to your first question again, that was really the sort of the tipping point fracture between what we're trying to accomplish, I think, mm-hmm. and what they are doing. Totally. So you kind of, you, you skirted what I want to really answer your do. question. You did. <laughs> yeah, you did. You okay. did. And it raises the question of, I was thinking about this earlier before I came on. I was like, how are we, how are we going to talk about what we do um, and why we do it and the differences of it? And I think you kind of touched on kind of the, mm-hmm. the business model kind of um, difference between what we're doing and what they're doing. And um, I think the next thing I'd like to talk about is like the experience, right? Because a lot of the things that stick in my mind when I thought about talking to you were like key, key things that you've said over time of how you try to explain what we do to our crew, mm-hmm. to our teams, and how to get them to see the vision that we have. And, um, and there's the, the experience, you always talk about the experience with you and Kristen, your wife, that kind of like that, that date night situation. Um, talk about that a little bit and why that's important to what we do mm-hmm. and what we're trying to do. Um, when, and cause that kind of carries over into when we start talking about a concept or we're looking at one of our restaurants and how it's operating, we mm-hmm. kind of always go back to those things that are important to us and whether we're achieving those things for right. others. Right. Mm-hmm. So what is that for you? Like the, the experience, like the overall thing that you're trying to, to achieve. When Kristen and I were still dating and we were still living up in the New York area, we were actually in New Jersey, but we would, we were, I was working in New York at the time. Um, I went, we went to eat at Union Square Cafe in their old location, the original location. Yeah. And that was the first time really in my adult life where I had a, a absolutely sincere sense of inspiration as a result of my experience eating there. When I was growing up, we'd go out to eat at, at like steakhouses and stuff. I grew up in Charlotte. So what, what, you know, we went to Sullivan's, yeah. we went to Capitol Grill, we went to Morton's. These were all like the original OG steakhouses right. in Charlotte, and that's where I grew up going. That was my idea of what fine dining or upscale dining was, and it is, mm-hmm. but not like fine dining in New York City, not like Union Square Hospitality Group. Level. Right. And so when I ate there at Union Square, I had previously read Set in the Table by Danny Meyer, and I ate there as sort of a verification that he wasn't just saying nice things in a book, but rather they were delivered on that product. What year was this? 2006, maybe, okay. seven. And I said, I want that. I don't know how he's doing this because the server was incredibly gracious. She was like an encyclopedia 
for our food. Um, the only person I've ever actually ever met in our company that has that level of knowledge is Chef Adam's wife, Alyssa Hodgson. Uh, yeah. Gerdo is her main yeah, name. Yeah. That level of depth of knowledge. That's not a chef, yeah, right? That's yeah. a server. She's a, she's a food nurse. She's a ser- server, yeah. but she's got a knowledge that a, that a chef has. And the server was was really gracious. Her timing was incredible. And then the food, I'll never forget the dish that I had. I had a mushroom pesto gravy halibut. And I'm not a big fish. You know this. I don't, yeah. I don't love fish. I'll eat it. Um, yeah. You rarely order it. I rarely. (laughs) (laughs) I figured when in Rome. Yeah. I was at Union Square Cafe. Um, I wanted to do something that I would never, I would normally never order. Do you remember if it was a feature item or was it on the menu? It was a menu item. Okay. I think. Kristen ordered a chicken. She kind of wimped out. Got chicken. (laughs) (laughs) The old safety. Right. You need a bailout. You always need a bailout. But we need to talk about the bailout. We do need to talk about the bailout. Because that's important. Yeah. That's part of the business model. But um, I had that dish. And honestly, it was a lot like the first time I ate your food where I was like, okay, there's another level that this can go to. That's sincerely how I felt. I had never had food like that before. Yeah. I'm trying to remember my first experience at Union Square Cafe. And I just, I remember the room. I don't remember what I ate. I remember, I remember really loving it. It was my brother's favorite restaurant too. So when I moved to New York in, was it 1997, I think I moved there um, for an externship. And my brother was living in New York City at the time, and that was his fa- like his favorite spot. He's like, you have to check this spot out. And I remember walking in, and um, it was it's an upscale restaurant, or it was I mean, it still is, but it's in a different location. It's an upscale restaurant, but it wasn't fine dining. I actually think it's more it's more upscale now. It feels like because yeah. you and I went in the you mean Alejandro went in the the new one, and it feels more, it feels more kind of fancy a little bit. Yeah, I mean they had white tablecloths, you know, but I didn't feel it felt more bistro-y to me. I think it was the sp- I think it was the space. Yeah. I think the space, the space now feels really grand with soaring ceilings. It's a beautiful restaurant now, but it lacks the, I think the approachability, that the sort of the the whimsical silliness, that the old Union Square Cafe had. There's nothing wrong with the food or the service. It's still great. It's just that last little piece. That made it feel so approachable. I mean, we were in our, Chris and I were, at the time, we were 26 or 27. I mean, we really didn't have any business going to a restaurant where, you know, your your per person spend is $100 plus. Uh, we didn't have that kind of money at that point. Um, I only think we had that kind of money the last, like, year or two. Um, <laughs> and so they did a good job of making us feel comfortable uh, just in the physical structure of the space itself. That is something that it's really hard to, and if, I feel like Union Square Hospitality has done a really good job in the past. I'm not, I'm not familiar with what they're up to now, but like their hiring practices right. to me seem to be like top notch. Or they're maybe they're just lucky, and, and through their business, they're able to like attract those people. Um, uh, but I noticed the same kind of hospitality at Gramercy. Yeah, for um, sure, the modern EMP back when, yeah. when they still ran it. Gramercy, even even though Gramercy is definitely, a, uh, I think, from a price standpoint alone, a step up from Union Square Cafe, Gramercy still felt very approachable. I mean, it's, ta- it's, it's called a tavern. I mean, I think they, they purposefully allow for a sort of kinder, not kinder, that's not right, softer, more, more approachable, less sort of rigid um, approach, whereas 11 Madison Park was like, felt like per se. It felt like, you know, Everything's on a clock, and every second 
there it's scripted and it's just it's like perfectly run i was the most impressed just from a execution standpoint at that time by emp love massive part that was truly extraordinary i enjoyed going to Gramercy tavern and union square cafe much more <laughs> and i and i would go back to those much more frequently than i would go to 11 madison park but right but 11 madison park was really extraordinary so what for you why, why one versus the other for, I, I like i like approachable i like i think you and i share this commonality it, that i like really approachable food done from a sort of fine dining view and fine dining to me at times is very unapproachable also i have kind of a weird dietary stuff so like some of the ingredients they love using in fine dining like foie gras foie gras yeah (laughs) some of the most delicious things i can't eat a lot of these things and so invariably you see a you know 10 course tasting menu and like three of the courses i'm i'm like can you bring me a pb and j on toast (laughs) yeah um you know i i can't i can't participate the same way um it's kind of like this which would you rather do would you rather go to the National Gallery, and look at paintings done by Mark Rothko, or would you rather go see Spider-Man? That's the way I view it. And, and obviously, that's a that's a dramatic sort of juxtaposition, but but I like Spider-Man. I like Mark Mark Rothko too. And so I'm I'm not saying that we can't appreciate both, but from a day to day standpoint, right. you relate more to Spider-Man. I relate more than 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 different colored squares. Yep. You know, regardless of how much I feel physically responsive to Rothko's work you know Spider-Man I get to watch with my family it's fun I can watch it repeatedly it makes you laugh gives you a little adrenaline rush it's just more engaging and I think that that's you know the sort of the beauty of improving on the common experience by common I simply mean that like we all experience it Um, whereas I think only a relatively small few can go and see a Rothko um, or a Basque or something and get anything out of it because it's just some swirls of paint on a, on a wall like you have to want to be engaged and like those to 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 respond generally um, whereas Spider-Man I mean it's I think it's gonna it's over a billion dollars worldwide so, so obviously lots of us would prefer to, to do that for sure <laughs> I totally I mean I, I see where you're coming from on that I mean I definitely feel the same way about dining um, you know, and I'm a chef, like, and I've worked with some of the best chefs in the country and I feel out of place in an upscale restaurant. Like I walk in, I'm like, uh, that's not the feeling but you of don't that like kind the skill of service. To do it. And that's sort of the point that I was trying to make no. is, is that, yeah. you, you know, we're talking about how we got to here. Right. Right. And, right. I, and I don't, I, I mean, I'm sure I could have worked at some fine dining place in New York if I'd wanted to. I'm sure I could have gone down that route if I'd wanted to, just like you did. Um, but I've always found myself getting pulled back towards sort of where the masses are because I find people interesting from a distance. <laughs> I don't always find them as interesting when I start talking <laughs> about But from a distance, just in terms of sort of macro behavior, I think people are very interesting. Uh, and they display a lot of their behavioral patterns in a restaurant. What do they order? Where do they like to sit? Who do they eat with? What do they drink? How much do they eat? How much do they drink? And you see that over time, you start to see patterns in people's sort of approach. And I don't know, I've always been fascinated with that. You can't really get that out of, I mean, you can, but when you're at a fine dining restaurant, how many people can afford to pay $1,000 for dinner for two? 
So you're looking at a, the behavior of a very well, and if they're and, and if they are going to pay that much, you can only do a finite amount of people per service in order to to execute. And who can, so who are you talking about? You're talking about an extremely narrow field of people, and so you learn something for sure, but you don't you don't get to know nearly as many people. And you don't stay connected to what people really want. You're, you're, you're sort of in this rarefied air amongst the financially elite, let's put it that way, or tourists like I was that were showing up briefly to see how the other half lives and then come back to reality. Um, <laughs> right. Whereas what Which we... Which I would argue we're still tourists. I, I Although, totally agree. <laughs> but um, In that regard. But I, I, I think that... Um, I've always been drawn. I grew up working at Irish pubs, you know. I grew up working at corner restaurants and bars and stuff. That was that's where I feel most comfortable. That's where I've enjoyed my time working. And so that's I think was that was informing our decision of how to craft our concept in in the beginning, the business model where this all started is like having something upscale but still approachable, having it feel human and not, you know, rigid and robotic, being compassionate and creative but still being technically sound and proficient. That's that's really what I wanted the most. I think you're the same in the kitchen, right? Aren't you yeah. are, on the food side isn't that sort yeah, of totally. a description of your, your approach? Yeah, totally. Yes, that's exactly my approach, you know, is like trying to So you touched on something that that resonated with me a, a minute ago towards the end of of that and it was that that you were that you found people fascinating and interesting from a distance, right? And and that's interesting because I want to ask you about, and then you tied it up really nice about you know how we kind of the idea for our concept started formulating, right? Was, um, but then I want to talk about what that experience was like for you because you were because you were the GM when we opened Five Church. I remember I mean, you were the you were the I think you were I was, the front desk. I think every I was night. the GM, and, the AGM, the service manager, the bar. Manager. <laughs> I don't know how many managers we had in the beginning. So, totally. And um, so, I want to talk about that experience. But first, let me relate to that and say, you know, the thing that attracted me to cooking, you know, and I say this a lot um, when people interview me, is, um, you know, I have a natural talent for cooking because um, I like to eat. And and my parents were not particularly great cooks. They still aren't awesome cooks. You know, I do most of the cooking when we're together. So I had that natural talent, but what I learned early on um, when I started cooking professionally was that first off, everybody has to eat. Yep. So, so there's a connection there that this was a way for me to connect with people in a way where I didn't have to be close to them. I could connect with people from a distance and I could still nurture people in a way where it didn't have to be so mm -hmm. in your face or personal. Um, and that's kind of what drew really drove me to, immerse myself in it and become excellent at it and want to be able to reach people through food. But now let's circle back to the experience of that. So, so we, so, so five church opens, <laughs> right. And now we have to, um, it's game day, you know, like we've done all the practice, we've done the, the scheming of the, the playbook. Um, and we open up and, uh, now it's, it's time to play the game. So what was that experience like for you? First of all, I mean, I, I can barely remember what that was like. But but so what was that like for you? What was your experience through that? First of all, what did the day to day like look like? Uh, I, like I don't even just honestly like, those early days. I, I I don't even remember. I was making most of the decisions just just based on a combination of fear and instinct. 
It was yeah. just like, you know, because you start and you, you you don't have anybody telling you you're right or wrong. Like, there's nobody right. there going, hey, this. And that was, your, that was your first experience as the boss. Well, I had my own bar very briefly, but but we, I had a partner and it wasn't. It wasn't like this. This it was that was really just kind of a free for all. But um, yeah, this is the first time I'd been like in charge of my own place. I was a GM at Butter, and and so I I was a boss there, I guess. But um, this was like not only was I the boss, but I was like at that point the only the creator, one, like the only yeah. one, right? And you were trying to tell a story, like you had a mission. Like Ali Alejandro at the time, you know, we were all partners, but but Alejandro at the time had like zero restaurant knowledge or experience. He's actually pretty knowledgeable now, but he had none. You had tons of kitchen experience, but you and I hadn't really developed our working relationship yet. I mean, we were in the process of doing it. And so I, I was really all by myself. We were bringing managers in and then they would quit or I would fire them. And so that experience for me was just, again, like I said, it was a, it was a whirlwind of fear because I mean, we didn't really have any money when we started. We were basically broke when we opened not basically we were the, we the were bank broke. had a red number in it <laughs> with a whole bunch of zeros and we were in a location that i think we all agreed was was going to be an uphill climb at the time at the corner of fifth and church and so uh, that was the fear was like oh my god how are we going to be able to make it and so as a result i ended up working you know 100 and god knows how many hours a week and i was there all day long i lived in the ivies upstairs and so I was just on call 24 7 and every single decision at that point ran through me which is a lot it was, I mean that's just it's a very stressful way to work and I wouldn't recommend that kind of approach for anybody if you can get around it it's just because you end up you end up it, t- it takes a, just an enormous toll on you it's the best way to make sure that that the store is run the way that you want because you're the one making the decisions but then when you realize that your decisions are informed only by your experience and not by anybody else's and you're just sort of winging it um, is terrifying. So it's this back and forth of like making a decision, feeling confident about it, and then doubting it because you're like, you don't know what you're talking about. Within so seconds. With mo- no, this all happens like, at like yeah. you know, light speed in, your in nanoseconds. Yeah. And so you're having this inner dialogue in your head where you're, you know, your, your brain sort of fighting with itself um, and you just you just make a call and you hope that it's right. And if it's wrong, you admit it and you learn from it and you move on. That was a, that was a really difficult, but I, you know, my dad was, my dad's a doctor. He's retired now, but, and he was a doctor at a time when, when they, when you did your residency and your, your internship and residency, they just really beat you up. I mean, they just would work. I mean, I see they still do, but it was like, there was no protections in place for young doctors. They would work you know, 150 hours a week in the ER just, um, and my dad did one of these at, uh, his residency at, uh, Barnes hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, which is a very well-regarded hospital and hearing stories of him talk about what his life was like for that year or two that he was doing that. I'm not saving lives. I wasn't working in the ER, but the level of exhaustion that he describes, (laughs) he told the story one time where he came home and my, my mom came out and found him uh, on his knees with his hands in his pockets asleep on like an ottoman like literally he was kneeling with his body laying on his ottoman unconscious because he was so exhausted and and I know that feeling very well um, because those that first six nine months at a new restaurant that's yours was just it just rips your guts out and I I don't think you could pay me enough to go back and do that again that was a pretty tough process 
how confident were you at that time in the concept? Because we kind of flushed out. I mean, we were when we opened, we had a very clear vision. At least I thought, you know, I did about what we were trying to do, what the food was going to be like, what the experience was going to be like, and what what the um, hospitality we were going to deliver was going to be. How confident were you in that? Highly. Okay, so so you you felt I felt highly confident that we were we had a winner before we even opened. I thought your food I thought your food was great. I thought that Alejandro could could drive people to us. I thought that the design was spectacular and and unlike anything we'd seen before. And uh, I knew myself and that I was basically willing to do what I did, which is to work until it worked. And so for that reason, though, for those reasons, I felt confident across the board how it was actually going to happen like how it would take place i no idea just it could have been anything what was the biggest doubt that you had at that point like what was the what was the biggest fear i mean failure is like the biggest fear i think for me you know i I never want to fail what was that for you at that time what was your biggest fear about this this project i mean other than the fact that we were completely out of money (laughs) and uh i mean cash cash always has cash always has a hand in this. I mean, cash always makes you can affect your mood if you don't have enough. No matter if you're this is your personally, this is your business. Um, but that wasn't really what was. I wasn't worried about failing. I was doubting our ability to deliver what we set out to deliver, because it was going to require great staff. Was going to require a depth of management that we we didn't have, obviously, since it was really just me and some helpers. I guess I'm talking the first like six months, mm-hmm. and so it was it was a doubt driven by can we actually pull this off to deliver the product the way that we want to? Can we deliver on the vision that you and I have just spent the last you know a few minutes talking about? Are we going to be able to deliver that? Because if we're not and we're just a restaurant, then I'm I'm unhappy. I don't want to. I don't want to just own a restaurant. I don't want to do this just to make some money or to like buy myself a job. I wanted to say something. This was our chance to put our signatures underneath something that hadn't existed before, and that's what I wanted the most. I think my biggest fear at that stage was that people weren't going to get it. That people weren't going to get behind it. I knew that we could deliver it because um, we had spent like a. L- just so much time talking about the food, the menu, like what, like what we were trying to do. Like we, I felt very confident in the, the concept. Mm-hmm. I knew exactly from point A to B what the experience should be and would be for the guest. My, my biggest fear when we set out was, are people going to get what we're doing? Because nobody was really doing it that right. way in Charlotte. You know, it was a little risky. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think we literally said, fuck you to all the, like, I think literally in an interview, we said, all these restaurants can go fuck themselves. We're going to change the way, we're going to change the way, like, which is just a fucking idiotic thing to say when you're opening your first restaurant. You know, I don't, I know, I think it goes both ways. I think that, that there is a certain allure to people that don't play by the rules. And... The rules at that point, and I think people in Charlotte forget because it's been, it's not quite a generation, generation is about 15 years, yeah. but it's been a minute. I mean, people that were in their mid-20s coming to Five Church, uh, now Church and Union, right? Yep. Officially. Yep. But coming to Five Church in 2012 and 13 that were 25, they're 35 now. They've got 
probably have kids at home. They're probably married, have a career, moved up. You know, that's those people know what the Charlotte food scene was like back then. Even more so, the people that were in their 30s that are now in their 40s really know what it was like. The people that are in their 20s that are going out to eat the most frequently now, I mean, they were teenagers. They don't know what the Charlotte food was seeing. They have no idea. They don't have that. It's not their fault. They just don't have that perspective. And so um, you're right. I mean, we were we were trying to be different, and I think that that was appealing to a certain percentage of the population because we said so adamantly, you know, fuck off and that we're going to do our own thing. I think that that both was it's divisive. Right. right. That's something we should talk about. Yeah, we should. That our group is divisive, which I'm not sure I understand. Well, why is our group divisive from an from from our perspective? Because I don't think it is from our I don't think it is a divisive group. Do you think that it's it? Our group is divisive from the outside looking in. You think yes. The general public is divisive about our yes. I mean, internally we're not. I think we're very clear about what we're doing and what our mission is. But what, so what? Why? Why do you think that is? Do you think it? Be, you think it's because we are adamant about what we're doing? I don't want to say that we don't. We think very thoroughly about the decisions we make, how we do what we do. It's not always our way or the highway, mm-hmm. right. right? Like we, like our decision making process is pretty thorough. And yeah, but but we we know that, right? I think it's it's very easy to paint a portrait of someone uh, or people if you don't really know what you're talking about, because then they could be whatever you want. Then it's just creative writing at that point, and you're just using something non-fictional to create a fictional story. Hypothetically speaking, but you know, I maybe maybe it's maybe it's that we are outspoken and we're opinionated and we we don't put up with BS. I think that that, and and, and we probably don't always deliver. In fact, I know that we don't always deliver on what we are ostensibly promising with our good feedback and the popularity and the way the restaurant looks. And I think that that, that upsets people because they have heard really great things. And then when we don't deliver, if they feel like it's like either personal or that they've been had somehow, and that makes people angry. Sure. You know what there doesn't happen? Know where that doesn't happen almost ever is Capital Grill. You know why it doesn't happen to Capital Grill? Because they have it down to they a science. Have a script. Yeah. They're just gonna do the same thing over and over and over again. I'm not again, I'm not knocking them. One of our former managers works over there, he's a great guy. <laughs> and they're really nice people down the one in Charlotte, but they they they're just gonna deliver the same thing over and over and over again. And so there are no surprises. Okay. Whereas with us, there is going to be because we try to entrust the people that are actually doing the selling, which is the bartenders and the service, because we entrust the kitchen to change the menu every single day rather than keep the same things on over and over and over and over again. You know, because we're willing to take risks, I think with risks comes, you know, some negative response from time to time. And and then we say, basically, if you don't like it, you know, stick it. Yeah. That's not really how we feel. Of course, we want to try to fix the problems, but I think that that's our sort of persona, maybe. And we've earned that. But I think that that really turns people off at times because they don't know us. And so it's easy to just sort of categorize someone or something as X, Y, or Z rather than doing the work. I think part of it too, and maybe this has something to do with it, is that notion of the customer's always right. Right. Like the restaurant business has been a proponent of that sure. fucking nonsense right. as long as I've been cooking, right. which I don't necessarily adhere. I don't believe that at all. No, neither I don't I. think I, I don't. I think that I used to that used to be a mantra that I told myself. 
um, to try to have the food that we're doing or the experience accepted by the guest. But I think that's flawed, you know, and I think that might be part of the, the fight, the divisiveness of that expression only works if the customers don't know that that's our approach. Right. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Yep. Once they know that that's our approach, there are going to be people that abuse that privilege, just like every privilege that exists on Earth. Right. I'm talking you're growing up. Right. You were a hellraiser. Yep. You got to be home by 10. Are you going to get home at 10 o'clock or get a roll in at one o'clock in the morning through your bedroom window or God be lucky what? if I came back right. in 24 right. hours. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, there you go. So the, the idea that, you know, you can tell every single person that's ever going to walk into a restaurant that you're always right no matter what. And they have to do that for you. This this business has to has to has to treat you right no matter what you do. They have to treat you like what you're doing is right. There are going to be people a pretty, you know, it's a, it's a minority percentage, but it's a but it's a it's a percentage. If I had to guess right now, I don't know why this is the number coming to my mind, but it's about seven percent. Okay, <laughs> it's a pretty exact a, number. I feel like you've thought about this before. No, it's just how my brain works. But that's a lot of people. If you do a million customers a year, seven percent is seventy thousand people a year that are going to abuse that privilege. And I just think that's. I think it's been highly toxic for pe some people to know that, that that our staff won't punch back, you know, that they can't fight back. And frankly, I think that also reveals the single worst kinds of people out there. Because if you're fighting somebody that you know can't fight back, right? Yeah. And you're just abusing them, taking out things that have nothing to do with them on them. Right. That's pretty. That's pretty despicable behavior. <laughs> that is despicable. And I think. And I think that that notion empowers those people. Of course. They can't fight back. What are they gonna What are they gonna say? And then they complain to the manager, and the manager's like, "Oh, I'm sorry for the." It's like, no, the manager in that situation needs to go. You know, you're being abusive to my. If they are, you're being abusive to my staff, and you're being abusive to this restaurant. You're being being disrespectful to the people that work hard to make this work. I would. We would like nothing more than you to enjoy your meal. Do you think that that's a possibility, or are you are you at the point where you're no longer happy with your experience here? In which case, I would love to buy you your meal, and please ask you to leave. That's that's something that, that should happen in every restaurant. And, and, and I think it's happening more now because of the post-COVID insanity that we're seeing. Yeah. But that's something that even pre-COVID I felt all the time where, you know, guests have this sense of entitlement that they can just be horrible. And it's just not true. It's wrong. Thinking about how how COVID has, I think this is a whole nother, this is a whole nother yeah. episode where we need to talk about, yeah. you know, how COVID has affected or affected the way we're going to operate our businesses moving mm -hmm. forward and like what that looks like i mean we're not even like we're not even through this thing yet like we're just it seems like it's 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 never ending it's an endemic it's not going to stop it's just going to so, be so we so we're going to need to figure out how we operate our businesses moving forward yeah we'll, we'll have to do a whole nother whole other episode on sure that. done so let, let's talk a little bit about how do you feel we're doing at satisfying that vision Mm -hmm. from a decade ago to today do you feel like um you feel good about it you feel like we've we've achieved it mostly like what percentage we, we we've achieved yeah yes have we surpassed it yes i think we've successfully built a business model that can be replicated that allows that partnership of technically outstanding food service ambiance design everything while simultaneously allowing our kitchen staff and our front of house staff the freedom to demonstrate 
their knowledge, their personality, their inspiration, creativity, while well, so those two things are partnered while also making a profit and making a very good profit. Um, so I think that not only have we succeeded sort of from a high level conceptual standpoint, but we've we've proven in our business model that that approach can work, and it has worked. Do you ever think so? A key a key piece of the success for this model is that you have to be able to entrust and trust your team to be able to deliver, right? To make decisions, to be creative, to to take ownership of of the operation. One, how easy or difficult is that for you? And and B. You say one and then B? A. A. <laughs> I did. I did. And then I'm going to use, I'm next. Gonna use symbols <laughs> next. Lowercase <laughs> I. Yeah. So first, how easy or difficult is that for you? It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult because it requires constant maintenance. Uh, again, when you go back, and I, I hate to... And I hope no one thinks I'm picking on anybody. But but when you go back to the corporate model, you give somebody a book. You say, hey, learn this book. And then you test them on that book. And you test them on the, the sort of the script over and over and over and over again. And you drill it down so hard. And they make so much money consistently, generally, that the servers do or the bartenders do. That, that it makes it relatively easy to manage and that we are all ultimately interchangeable when you're working for a, a model like that. Now... We're all replaceable. I'm replaceable. You're replaceable. We're all replaceable. But we're not all interchangeable. We have a server right now at Church and Union Charleston named Anfernee, who is, I would argue, one of the top three or four servers we've ever had in our company. We can replace him. We could replace him tomorrow. We can't interchange somebody to the position he's in and get the same results from someone else. He's great because Anthony's a great server because not only does he have a remarkably detailed knowledge of the product that he's selling, but he has an approach that is is exactly as we described before for what we feel great service is. It's creative, it's fun, it's thoughtful, it's compassionate, it's timely, and it's fun. He makes it fun. We get almost no negative feedback about this guy, and he's worked for us for I don't know a few years now. Yeah, three years. Enough maybe? enough that we have a a reasonable track record. That's that's our ideal employee. Finding somebody like that is hard. Finding somebody like that right now during COVID is especially hard or post-COVID or whatever we're in. And so keeping everyone rowing the same direction from a from an operational standpoint starts with keeping everyone rowing the same direction from a philosophical standpoint. What is our vision and how do we accomplish that? That's not done a whole lot of other restaurants memorize this and then repeat it um or it's a shit show just good luck and they just push in and we've done that before listen we're not above or below any of this we've done all these things we have five businesses that are six at this point like we've we've seen it all we've made those levels of mistakes before but but the way that you do it successfully from my perspective is is that you train uh, a sort of a leadership group the vision, the philosophy first, the culture first, all the operational stuff you're going to learn. You're going to learn 
you know where the, what to do where when. the point of sale terminal is and how to ring stuff in. You're going to learn where you guys keep the sugar or the flour. Uh, all those things are things that you're going to learn just by doing over and over and over again. And then obviously because we're going to train you on them. But the cultural side, the side that makes that makes you feel compelled when you're a guest, that makes you feel sort of emotionally connected when you're a guest, uh, is the side that is, you know harder to manage because you're really not trying to you're just trying to make people feel a certain way right we have a awesome group of executive management now so much that we've empowered them to become partners um in our businesses which i think is awesome because it gives them ownership like actual ownership not just a theoretical ownership of like owning the shift or owning your whatever they actually you know own a piece of of what we're doing Moving forward into the future as we grow, what, how do you see that vision evolving, that empowerment evolving? Do you, uh, I know right now with staffing, it's difficult. Um, we're, we're, I th- we're not lucky. I think we've, we've found over time the people that really fit the mold for us and we've invested in them and we've entrusted them. Um, and hopefully they'll be with us for a super long time. Just knock on wood. Um, I think they will. But there isn't a ton of them out there. Like I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the, you know, the the depth pool out there, and I'm not seeing a ton of people that I'm like, God, I want that guy on my team, or this, you know, we need this, we need this lady to 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 be on our team. Like that's not happening right now, um, the way it did five years ago. So moving forward into the future, our growth trajectory, which we have, how do you see that shaping up? What do you think the strategy is for that? Sure. The business model is to try to recruit people that that find what we just described as desirable. If, if you're working in a restaurant and it's first, not your long-term objective. So if step one is, or first part is, it's not what you want to do. You're just doing it to pay your way through school, whatever, no worries, right? But let's remove that group from the pool of what we're about to discuss. If you want to be in the restaurant business as a career, um, and you seek structure. There are some people that really like that. You need structure. You want to have systems, and everything's like every every corner is sharp and a ninety degree angle, and every I is dotted, and every T is crossed. Then eliminate them from our group as well because they're not going to jive with our approach. It's not their fault. It's not our fault. It's just not a mismatch of vision, right? The remaining balance of people that are out there that want to be in the restaurant business and, and really value creativity, which is a lot of them, which I would guess is probably majority of them, those people, what we want is we, we want to give them a hub, an opportunity. Because what I want to do is I want to provide a hub for creative, intelligent people that would like to have the opportunity to move into an ownership role and lead our company or their own. Maybe we'll invest in it. Mostly what I'd like to do is is have the work that we do set up a pro forma for, for getting people into our career, our company, or I'm assuming our, our industry um, permanently. We need intelligent people in our career. We don't need transients. Um, we don't need corruption. We don't need sleazy characters. We don't need any of that. What we need is smart, motivated people that are passionate about hospitality, which is a lot of people. Up until now, if, if people look at us and I'm sorry, if people look at the restaurant business, especially after COVID, a lot of people are going to have doubts that this is a viable career. Our job is to do the opposite. 
our job is to provide assurances that not only is this a viable career, but we're a viable company and, and, and a place that you're going to be able to learn and grow and be prepared to um, open your own store one day or be part of a group that opens lots of stores or, or whatever. So what is the vision moving forward into 2022 and beyond to, to make sure that, that we are doing that, um, that we're attracting the right people, keeping or illuminating that you know, this industry is, is a reliable one for the people that are currently in it, so they, you know, continue to strive and, and move up the ladder. What what can we do or what is what do you think we should do moving forward or what are we going to do moving forward to uh, to make that happen? One is just to continue to execute our business model because we've successfully done that already and, and either intentionally or unintentionally recruited a lot of really great people over the last couple of years especially. So the first thing is just do what we're doing. I think the second thing is is to really lean into it. So these things that um, we are talking about right now have to ultimately manifest themselves in terms of your operation, right? It's nice to say, oh, we've got all these great ideas, and, and, but you need to ultimately find a way to integrate these great ideas into your operation to have them actually take any kind of effect. And so um, we are going to open two more restaurants this year or, well, in the next year, let's say 18 yeah. months. <laughs> um, and so um, I think spreading the message that we have to new um, cities and to new groups of employees and continuing to operate the right way will in, um, in, in encourage people to come work with us. The more people that do and see what we're doing, I think the more that the message gets out there in a good way. So that's really what I want the most is, is, is I would like to hand off a lot of the operational things that I do on a day-to-day basis to the senior team that we have and then spend my time. Uh, and then we, you and I have talked about this before about what we want you to do too is spend our time training, um, developing talent because that's what it's all about. I mean, I mean, no offense to your food, but, if you serve an amazing dish and the server comes over and goes here and puts it in front of somebody and then, you know, walks away and, you know, that's, I don't care what you're serving. It can be amazing. The first thing you're going to hear about in the review or the first thing a person's going to think is like, what is wrong with that, that server? You know? And so it starts with culture first and then all the things that we do well is, is backed up behind it. Great. So, um, so let's wrap it up there on that thought. And for anybody who, Likes what they hear there. <laughs> Send a resume <laughs> to yeah. uh, what, what? What are our emails now? Are they Church and Union I yet? Even, what is, I, I don't know what my email what the, is. Yet. What are we doing? <laughs> I know I still have Patrick at fivechurch.com for okay. now. So, so, so send your emails to uh, Patrick at fivechurch. No, no, no. Don't send them to me. <laughs> send them to Madison at fivechurch.com. <laughs> don't send them to me. Um, for career opportunities. <laughs> cool. And then, um, you know, you'll hear from us again soon about some other hot topics with, with the restaurant industry. Thanks for listening.